0: Hey, good morning, everybody. Great to see everybody at Hillcrest today on a beautiful Lord's Day here in the panhandle of Florida, and uh, we're grateful to have all of you with us in the house here at Nine Mile. Welcome to those of you that are at a Spanish Trail campus this morning. We love each and every one of you and are praying for you this morning, and to those of you that are with us today, they're on Facebook Live or on our website, we're grateful that you're joining us wherever you may be. Great crew here at the Nine Mile Campus and an exciting crew over at Spanish Trail today. And we're about ready to dig in the words. that all right with everybody this morning? Say amen. Loving this study in Colossians, man. Talking about the deep riches of Jesus Christ. You can go to no better place to learn who Jesus is, what Christ has done, and how we ought to respond to him than in this very brief letter Uh, that oftentimes gets very overlooked called Colossians. We're going to be turning the page this morning to the third chapter of Colossians, having worked our way literally through every word of chapters 1 and 2. And in just a few moments, we'll read our text in the first four verses this morning. Many years ago, uh, as I pastored my first church in southwest Missouri, I had a delightful man in that church who had the spiritual gift of encouragement. Don't you wish everybody in church had the gift of encouragement? Can you say amen? If I could give every church member one gift out of all those spiritual gifts, about 20 or so of them in the Bible, I'd give every one of them the gift of encouragement. And Dennis Brown had the gift of encouragement. Every Sunday morning, he would greet me before church in exactly the same way. He was an emotional man. So he laughed really easily, and he cried really easily. Dennis, you got a hair out of place. Oh, Lord. He would begin to cry. Very emotional man. But every Sunday, he would greet me in exactly the same way. He'd shake my hand, and he would pull me in, and he would say, preach them up today, preacher. Preach them up. Every week, he would tell me to preach them up. When I talked to pastors about this coming Sunday, I find myself now, having heard that every Sunday for 10 years nearly, I tell the same thing to preachers I know. Whatever you do, preach them up today. I'm pretty sure the last thing that you ever want is for me to preach you down on a Sunday morning, right? Nobody, you wouldn't be very long here, very long if, 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 if I did that regularly. No, you tell people the truth, but you can tell people the truth and even cut people on the heart and still preach them up. Isn't that right? Be positive and encouraging in terms of the way you did it. And you know, that type of approach to life is true generally in just about every area of life, whether you're a manager or whether you're a coach uh, or whether you're a parent or whether you're a director of some kind, whatever the case might be, you want to preach them up, you want to lead them up, you want to coach them up, you want to point them up. And that's what Paul's doing here today as we make this turn into Colossians chapter 3. We come to what one New Testament scholar calls one of the golden paragraphs of the Bible. And I believe that's true. This is a pretty familiar passage to most of us that have walked with the Lord for a long time. And the thing about it is it's a passage that directs our attention upward, upward. We've done recreational sports at Hillcrest for many years. And one of the ministries that we're in association with is called Upward Sports. We do upward basketball and we do upward cheerleading and we do upward flag football because there's a component in the midst of all of that athletic competition that we teach from a spiritual perspective. Devotions happen regularly. And we point those people away from the field and away from the court and away from the cheers, important as they are, we point them upward to something more important, which is their personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's focusing our attention up as we continue to live in a world, I think you'd agree, that can really bring you down. And this is so important because at its heart, this is a statement about the critical nature of what I'm calling today the upward focus of a resurrected life. Let's take a look this morning at Colossians 3, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things That are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Father, we thank you today for the power of this very brief passage of Scripture. Help us, Lord. Uh, to squeeze all the spiritual juice we can out of it this morning in order that our lives might be focused heavenward so that we may take others to heaven with us by the way that we live and by the testimony that we give. May we honor Christ through it all. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray. And let all God's people say amen this morning. Now, as I said a moment ago, this is a transitional paragraph. This this four-verse paragraph basically is a hinge between the first two chapters and the last three chapters of Colossians. It's not at all uncommon for the Apostle Paul to make a turn in his writing. Paul is usually pretty predictable. He will begin his letters, all things theological. He'll take a good bit of time teaching the churches to whom he writes the rich theology about Jesus Christ or about the church or about the spirit or about all of the above that they need to know in order to effectively live their lives in a way that brings honor and glory to God in a way that they can be saved actually and then after having done that he usually makes a turn it's not always right down the middle like it is here or as it is even in his letter to the Ephesians. You can almost draw a line right down the middle of Ephesians and Colossians. And on one side, you got theology. On the other side, you got Christian living, what we do with our theology. And that's exactly what happens here. The first two chapters, we've spent, what, 18 years so far in it here at Hillcrest? And we've picked every verse of it apart. It's ever been every bit of it been about Jesus been about who Christ is, how we can identify him so that we can know him for who he truly is, and what he did on the cross in order to liberate us and give us the gift of eternal life. Every bit of the first two chapters has been about what we call the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, having taught us the essence of the gospel, Paul now makes a turn, and for the rest of the letter, he's going to help us to know how to live that gospel. What are we supposed to do with it? How is it supposed to be fleshed out? until such time we're liberated from the bonds of this earth and go to live forever in the eternal kingdom. And what you need is an effective transition between those two, and that's what Colossians 3, 1 through 4 is. It's a hinge. It's an effective transition that gets us from one place to the other. And the passage is nicely divided, the one we just read, in three obvious dimensions— The first thing that we're going to notice this morning is that there's a condition that's followed by a command that's then explained with a cause. The three C's of Colossians 3, 1 through 4. The condition and the command followed by the cause or the reason behind the command, all designed to drive home this key central point. A few Sundays ago, we had a five-point sermon today. We only got one. Somebody say amen. Amen. So here's one key idea for you to take away today, and here it is. The key point that Paul is trying to make is this. If I have been saved by Christ, I'll pursue the things of Christ because of who I am in Christ. Does that make sense? If I've been saved by Christ, I will pursue the things of Christ because of who I am in Christ. Condition, command, cause. Let's begin, first of all, this morning with the condition. And the condition that Paul sets, he does right out of the gate, and it's very simply that life transformation comes through an individual's embrace of the gospel and faith in Jesus Christ. Over the remainder of this letter, as I said a moment ago, Paul's going to lay down some pretty identifiable markers, particularly so in chapter number 3, how we are identified as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ in the world in which we live. He wants us to know not only what a believer should believe, chapters 1 and 2, he wants us to know how that ought to make a practical difference in our life, how we as believers ought to live And he knows that there's no way any human being can do these things that he's going to spend the next two chapters talking about in their own power. And this is part of the problem. Oftentimes the church throughout the years has taken Christian living, matters of Christian virtue and Christian conduct, and we've foisted them upon people saying, here, do these things and God will love and accept you. The only problem is a lost person can't do them. They cannot do them. They don't have any hope of doing them. And so instead, there's a real cause and effect. First, you have to have the presence of Jesus Christ in you, the hope of glory. And it's only the presence of Christ that gives you the supernatural enablement to live in a way that honors and glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ. So the sanctified life's only accomplished through supernatural power, Christ in you. And that's why Paul begins with this condition right up front. If then, based on everything that Paul has said, that's why the then or the therefore is there, based on everything I've just taught you about Jesus and about the gospel in the, la- in the first two chapters of this letter, which they didn't know were the first two chapters because it was just a letter, but based on everything I've said up to this point, if you have been raised with Christ, then here's what ought to necessarily follow as you move along with your life. And it's interesting that he begins here with this statement about resurrection because all over the first two chapters, he's talked much more about a believer's death to sin than anything else. You remember when I said a few Sundays ago that oftentimes when we talk about salvation, we couch it in terms of life, and that's correct. But before we can receive the gift of everlasting life, there first has to be a death. There is no death without at first or no, life rather, without first a death occurring. And that's why Paul says back in chapter 2, you got to put off the deeds of the flesh, put off the body of flesh. You have to be what? Crucified with Christ. He says up in verse 20 of chapter 2, with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world. And having died to that old sinful life, he goes on to say we've been buried with Christ and old things have what? Passed away. So we put to death the body of flesh in order that we might live. And that's important because in the same way Jesus had to die before he was raised from the dead, there is inevitably in every believer's life at salvation, not only a death, but also a what? A resurrection. We're raised just like Christ was. Our old life dies But yet at the same time, we are raised with Christ, made alive by the Spirit of God. It's exactly the same language that Paul uses in his letter to the Ephesians. Notice Ephesians chapter 2 beginning in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, even when we were what? Dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And God, parenthetically, not only made us alive together with Christ, God what? Raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, let me let you in on a little secret. Y'all still with me this morning? Say amen. Okay, here it is. We often talk about one day going to heaven. Did you know in a very real sense? How many of you know Jesus is Lord and Savior? Would you say amen? Amen. Okay, you're already there. You're already there with him. Didn't we just not read that? He made us alive and made us set together with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Past tense verb. In a corporate sense with Jesus. Now, you're not literally in heaven yet but you're as good as there because you've already been made alive and you've already been raised up and you've already been made to set together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. See, that kind of writing takes a future event, brings it into the present and makes it so certain that the writer actually uses the past tense to describe something that's actually already happened even though it hasn't already happened. So if you know Jesus as Lord and Savior, even though you haven't gone to heaven yet, you're as good as already there, which is why we believe that once you're saved, you can never be lost. Because you're already there with Christ in the heavenly places. There's absolute certainty. Theologians, For you scholars out there, theologians call that realized eschatology. It's last things that in the mind of the believer have already happened to them, even though they haven't already happened to them. So all of that stuff that we think of as future is described by Paul here in Ephesians and in other places in the past tense, as if it's already happened, because he knows it's as good as having already happened. And that's reflected, by the way, in the song that we sang, To start this worship service this morning, that song Glorious Day, we sing it a lot here at Hillcrest. And you remember the line that everybody goes nuts over? You called my name and I came out of that grave. Well, you don't look like you've been in a grave. No, but you've already come out of it. Because God has taken your dead life in sin, breathed new life into it, and Taken you up to Him in a corporate sense, where He is, the Bible says, seated at the right hand of God. I ran out of that grave, out of the darkness, into your glorious day. The song doesn't say I will one day run out of the grave, even though that's true. It says I did run out of that grave, and I ran out of that grave the day Jesus Christ called my name, and I surrendered to Him in everlasting faith. So, Our resurrection's already happened, even though we're still waiting for it to happen. Everybody with me, say amen, Amen. because that's deep stuff. So when it comes to heaven and the things associated with heaven, the question is this. Have you been made alive with Christ? Have you been raised up with Christ? Do you have that confidence that Christ has taken your life and your soul and your spirit already unto himself? And all that's waiting is for Christ to come again and literally... Make all of that an absolute reality for the rest of eternity. Do you know that that's already happened in your life? The way it happens is not by trying to do any of the stuff that Paul's going to tell us to do in chapters 3 and 4 of Colossians. It all comes by grace through simple faith. Have you trusted Jesus as your only hope? All right? Everybody tracking with me? Amen? Amen. So we begin with this condition, if then you have been raised with Christ who is seated at the right hand of God, that takes us secondly to a command. And Paul's point in these verses and those that follow is that because we're as good as already in heaven, we need to start living like it today. Hey, hey, hey. There is to be a cause and effect. I am a heavenly citizen today in one sense spiritually and supernaturally already in the heavenlies with Jesus. And what Paul doesn't want to have happen is for us to succumb to the flesh and start living like we're not citizens of the kingdom of heaven. There needs to be this upward focus that marks every resurrected life. And what does that look like? Where Paul says it here. It's one command given in two different ways. He says, first of all, seek the thing. verse 1, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. See, it makes no sense to tell a lost person to seek the things that are above because that is a supernatural impossibility. If you have been raised with Christ, if you have been born again, if Christ is living within you and has regenerated your life and transformed it to a kingdom citizen, then seek the things that are above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That verb seek is an aggressive verb. It means to pursue something with the desire to accept it or to possess it. It's a present tense verb which implies repetitive action. If you're using a New American Standard version of the Bible this morning, that concept of consistent persistence in seeking after the things of God's bound up in, in the translation of the, of, the, of the verse in the New American Standard. It says, keep seeking the things that are above. And that's exactly right because that's the import of the verb. In other words, Paul is saying, if, if anything preoccupies, what's was wondering if I took a poll this morning says, what preoccupies your thoughts? What do you think about much of the time? I'd get every answer in the world if I went out here like Oprah with a mic in my hand. I'd get a thousand different answers. What is it preoccupied? In church, I would only get one, the things above. That's what preoccupies my life things associated with Christ, things associated with his character, things associated with his kingdom, that ought to be the preoccupation, the driving desire of every believer's life. That's the very thing that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount already taught. Matthew 6:33, but seek ye first the what? kingdom of God, things above. Seek, same verb that's used here, seek The things above, the kingdom. Seek His righteousness, things above. And all of these things below, hey, 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 will be added unto you. But no believer should seek the things below and only occasionally give an elevated uplift to the things above. Does that make sense? That's where we get way off course in the Christian life. Pursue relentlessly the things above, and trust God to meet the needs below. It's like the professor. Anybody seen the movie National Treasure? Nick Cage, Professor Benjamin Franklin Gates. I've seen that movie with my kids 80 times, I bet. It's a great one to watch at home with the kids. And what is Professor Benjamin Franklin Gates pursuing with his life? Treasure, treasure. Supposedly brought over by those knights, Templar, entrusted to the Freemasons, then hidden away during the time of the American Revolution. Nobody but him buys it. He's about to be disinherited by his father who thinks he's lost his mind because the only thing he's doing is chasing after this supposed treasure. But persist, he does, all throughout the movie. And what does he find at the end of the movie? Surprise, surprise, he finds the treasure, and it's awesome. It's unbelievable in its scope when he actually finds it. But it's that kind of relentless pursuit. I mean, he goes in and steals a copy of the Declaration of Independence right out of the National Archives. That could never happen. It just could never happen. But he does it, and it makes a great movie, right? makes for great entertainment. But the point is, he goes to all these extreme lengths, to pursue in order to possess something of great value. That's the point. That's the picture right here. Seek the things that are above and keep on doing it with a relentless quest until one day you, who have already been raised, are actually raised and you inherit it as yours forevermore. That's what we're to do with the treasures. Of the kingdom. And the greatest treasure in the kingdom is what? Christ. Christ Himself. And He's the one that we're to seek above, more than anything else, where He's ruling and reigning at the right hand of God. There ought to be an upward look and an upward focus in every believer's life. The things that are above begin with Christ Himself. The most important thing above is Jesus. But then there are other things that make up the things above. Heaven itself is one of the things above. The environment of heaven, the atmosphere, and the experiences of heaven that we often think about. I have people all the time, when are you going to do a series on heaven? When are you going to do it? It's coming. I'm going to do it. I'm going to wait a little closer till I'm almost there, but it will be coming sooner rather than later at some point. But I'm going to do a series on it. But people are hungry for that. They want to know what's it going to be like, as if I know what it's going to be like. But we'll see what the Bible has to say about it. But the things above have more to do with the the will of God. When you seek the things above, you want God's will for your life. You'll get out of the way and quit setting your own agenda. You'll let the above agenda be set by Christ for your life. You'll want to know what God's plan for your life is, and you'll pursue that. And then Paul will identify for us in the rest of chapter 3 a lot of what the things above are character virtues like compassion and kindness and forgiveness and humility and love, what it means to look like Jesus. All of those are things above, things that can only happen through our union with Christ. So to do that, we have to keep looking up, upward focus of a resurrected life. We often talk about how it's a negative to always have your head in the clouds. Paul says it's not a negative, it's a positive. Believers ought to keep their head in the clouds. In fact, believers ought to have their heads above the clouds, seeking the things associated with Christ. But then the second part of the command, set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. So if you're going to seek the things above, which is the primary aim of a believer's life, You have to set your mind on things above in order to do it. That just refers to the inner drive. you got to have something within you that propels you to seek the things that are above. And that's where setting your mind, you'll never seek the things that are above unless and until you set your mind on things above first. Because there's this close connection between the two that reveals that successful Christianity is always from the inside first we live from the inside out not from the outside in so we have to first set our minds on things above and if we keep our minds our thoughts set on things above we'll tend to seek the things that are above And the opposite is true, because if you fail to set your uh, mind on things above, that all but guarantees you won't actively seek the things that are above. You have to think about them first. Not the things, because if you don't, you'll start to seek the things that are around you. Those kind of things that the world tells us that we have to have. And that's a tough and fine line for believers to walk. All of us battle that, not to be distracted by the markers of material success that everybody else is telling us, this is what you have to have in order to be happy. Money, materialism, fat bank accounts, nice cars, big fancy houses, lots of luxury toys, all of that stuff. Kent Hughes calls this the great divide of the Christian life and it presents a struggle that all of us as redeemed people have to engage in a fallen world. A lot of times people have taken the concept to the extreme so that to set their minds on things above, they've totally withdrawn from the world. That's how we've ended up with monastic lifestyles, monasteries, people just totally withdrawing so that they can be secluded and focus day after day, moment by moment, on the things of heaven. The only problem with that is you can't do the Great Commission if you withdraw from the world. The world is lost. God has left us here as missionaries with a message, to be witnesses to those people who need the Lord. There's a big difference between living in the world and buying into the world. God wants us to live in the world, but he doesn't want us to buy into the world. Everybody with me? And that's the great divide of the Christian life because that's not always an easy thing to do. Sometimes we can get sucked into materialism just like everybody else can. We long after the wealth and the honor and the applause of men and the accolades and pleasure. But here's the thing, over and over again, how many times in the Bible did Jesus talk about this? Where your treasure is, there your what? Your heart will be also, and don't be focused, don't lay up treasures on earth because there's no value in those things. And the reason there's no value in those things is because they don't last. You can't take them with you. And this is why a growing believer has to learn to view the world in light of eternity, in light of eternity, in light of eternity. You have to set your mind on things above and fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, because everything else is a wisp in the wind and it will vanish away with time. So set your minds on things above. This is why Paul told the Philippians in that very familiar passage, Philippians 4 and verse 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence in it, parenthetically, if there is anything worthy of praise, what? Think on those things. Set your mind on that stuff. And when you set your minds on things above, and you do it moment by moment, day by day, you'll tend to seek the things that are above as the primary preoccupation of your life. Everybody still tracking with me? Amen. So the point Paul's trying to make here, very simple. It's our key idea, first two points. If I've been saved by Christ, I'll pursue the things of Christ. And again, the way that you do that fundamentally, abide in Jesus, pursue Jesus. That's what you do. And if you pursue Jesus, all these things will be added unto you. And then finally, Paul gives us the cause. We got to wrap up with this this morning. He, the cause is why these two commands, to seek and to set, are so critical in the Christian life and witness. And the answer has to do with your identity in Christ. I pursue the things of Christ because of who I am in Christ. And Paul concludes this passage by talking about three dimensions or three identifying markers of your salvation if you're genuinely saved. The first is what I call salvation past, the past dimension of our salvation, and that's found in verse 3. And again, Paul makes the emphasis, for you have what? Died. There it is again. In every salvation, there first has to be a death. Your old life has to die. Now, we've talked about that plenty in this series, and so you should have that concept well in hand by this point. We've received new life, but only by identifying with the death of Jesus Christ and being crucified with him so that our old life dies when we trust Jesus to save us. Old things have to pass away Before all things can become what? That's right. So there is a death, and that is salvation past. Now, the second part of our Christian identity is salvation present. Notice verse 3. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's just mind-boggling. It's another statement of our union with Christ, our position as one with Jesus Christ. My New Testament professor, Curtis Vaughn, called that the root principle of the Christian life, that I'm one with Christ. I'm in Christ, and Christ is in me. So we set our minds on things above, and we seek after things above. Why? Because that's our identity, It's who we are in Jesus. Everything about us has changed. Old has died. New has come. Christ himself and the very fullness of Christ and the very fullness of God is living within me. Christ is the fullness of God in bodily form. I have the fullness of God in me, which means in reality, I've got the fullness of God living in me. How in the wide world... Could that happen and me pursue horizontal things of this earth that I know full well are passing away in life and will not last? Now, Paul says, not only is Christ in you, but you're also with Christ hidden in God. I don't do visuals often, but I'm going to do one this morning. You're going to love it. It's not original with me, though it should have been. I got some of these fancy. Y'all use these Tupperware things? I've got several of them with me today. that will illustrate the point. And again, this is not original with me. Some of you may have seen this before. This is you. And this is you before Christ. Empty. Nothing in it, Right? But then you hear the gospel, and you meet the Lord, and there's a call to repentance and confession of faith. Repent of your sin, turn away from it, turn to God, receive Jesus and his work on the cross as your only hope, and you will be saved. And then you were, you trusted Jesus, and Christ what? Christ moves in. This is Christ, and the moment that you're saved, Christ moves into your life. Somebody say amen. Amen. And so now I'm living with Christ in me. But an interesting thing happens because at the same time, not only does Christ move in me, Colossians chapter 1, Christ in you, the hope of glory. But at the same time, not only does Christ move in me, I move into Christ, he is in me, now I am in him. That's what Paul says here, that you died. He's already said Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now he says in chapter 3, you died, and your life is hidden with Christ. So Christ is in me, and I am in him. But then he takes it one step further here in verse 3. Your life is hidden with Christ, and what's the last two words? With Christ in God, so you know who this big boy is right here. Now you got this going on right here. You read the book of Ephesians. The Bible says at the moment of salvation, I am sealed by the Spirit of God. Amen. Now, you know why this is so important? Because what that means is there's not a thing that the devil can do to you. See, for the devil to attack your life, knock you off balance. See, the only person who can knock you off balance in life is you when you think about it. Because for the devil, the devil's got to penetrate four different levels here. For the devil to get to you, he's first got to get through God. And then assuming that he were to get through God, then he's got Christ because you are in Christ. So he'd have to get through Christ. And then if he were to get through Christ seated at the right hand of God and be face to face with you, he still got to deal with the Christ who is where? In you. And listen, here's the thing. The last time the devil faced off with Christ, we know how that ended. He got disarmed at the cross And as was forecasted all the way back, the first prophecy of the Bible, his head got crushed at the cross. So he doesn't have a very good track record standing off face to face with Christ. And it is for this reason that I believe once a believer is saved, he or she is eternally secure in the care and grace. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. That's a good place for an amen right there. First time I saw that, I'd never forgotten. I've been looking for a place to use it, and I found it right here. Now, finally, and we got to conclude this morning there is salvation future. Salvation past, salvation present. Finally, Paul speaks of salvation future, and that's verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears that's the second coming then you will also appear with him in glory. Christ in you is the hope of glory. So here's the thing. No Christ in you, no hope of glory, no hope of heaven, no hope of the future, no hope of anything but death and eternal separation from God. Christ in us is our future and eternal hope. And without him in us, we have no hope. But when you trust Jesus to save you, Christ moves into your life. Your life becomes hidden with Christ in God. And we have hope at that point that the spiritual resurrection that's happened in us will one day give way to the physical resurrection after we die. When Jesus comes again, we will literally get out of that grave. And He will call us to Himself and we'll be transformed and receive an eternal resurrection body at that time, outfitted for an everlasting future with him in heaven. I keep alluding to Philippians today, but this is what Paul means when he says in Philippians 3, watch it, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will, what, transform our, now the, now the, Tense, his future now we're looking ahead. we who have been transformed will be transformed. these lowly bodies will be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things through himself and when that happens let there be no doubt that at that time we will be finally, and forever delivered from the brokenness of this world and saved everlastingly. The things we look forward to now and the things that we seek above will forever become reality in our life when Christ will give them to us as our eternal inheritance. So we wait for the glory. We wait for the glory even though we already have the glory through Christ in us. But until the time it becomes reality, we have our marching orders, don't we? Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Seek the things that are above. If I've been saved by Christ, I will pursue the things of Christ, because of who I am in Christ. This is God's eternal word. And let all who agree say amen Amen. this morning.